Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, May 5th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. I am having a computer problem, so if this sounds weird and different, it's because I am doing this from my iPhone, and I apologize. But still on their computers and on their classy, sure MV7 mics, we have executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, because I'm so rattled uh, by my uh, by my uh, computer problems, um, we uh, we uh, we have done even less preparation than usual for this for this podcast. Uh, I guess the big new detail uh, that is uh, emerging today uh, in America is uh, that we, according to NBC News and a couple of other things, we have hit the uh, million death mark uh, in the pandemic. Um, now, you know, two years and two months uh, into, into the pandemic. And uh, a couple of things I want to note because they they go against a lot of the things that we have been saying and it's worth, worth, worthy of note. Um, in this um, uh, Omicron, uh, the, the new, the BA2 Omicron surge of the last month to six weeks, uh, hospitalizations in the United States are now in fact up after uh, several months of hospitalizations uh, declining. Uh, although the death toll continues to decline, although the, the rate of the decline is slowing, and there are reports of a concern about a new version of Omicron, a new variant of Omicron that is more contagious and potentially more dangerous, though, uh, since the report I heard on this last night on NPR just kept, was it was a reporter saying, uh, you know, experts, scientists believe and experts think, uh, I immediately uh, don't believe anything that I'm being told uh, because the, the experts don't know anything and the scientists don't know anything, as we now know, unfortunately, because of their behavior over the last two years. So that it may or may not be more contagious is a, something you're going to have to take on faith. And I don't know that we have any reason to take anything on faith uh, anymore from the public health establishment in the United States. Uh, nonetheless, it's a sobering fact that, uh, that we've hit the million death mark. And um, I am also struck, and I wanted to make this final point, that there was a poll of New York City residents uh, that was completed over the weekend that says that seven in 10 of New, seven in 10 New York City residents continue to support um, mandatory masking on uh, public transportation. And <clears throat> some comparable numbers say that they will continue to mask even if the mask mandates are lifted. Um, so here in, you know, here in this uh, very uh, weird uh, city, 70% of poll respondents say they want masking to continue apparently forever uh since they say they're going to continue to mask abe uh what do you what do you make of uh what do you make of all this well i mean just just to start sort of in the reverse order on the masking issue um i think it's an it's an important fact because i think the four of us might tend to overestimate the, de the degree to which um, the insistence for continued restrictions and masking um, is sort of purely a political game or um, some sort of cynical ploy on uh, the part of people who don't want to let go of the reins. I think there is, not that that doesn't exist, but there is, I think, a larger group than we kind of realize because we're not in it, who are simply traumatized by this. And they continue to be traumatized. And um, I don't know if there's any way, honestly, of, of taking them out of the equation at any point. I think, I think we're sort of 
it's it's a sort of permanent residual effect of what of the last two years. Dave, you're clearly correct. I don't think any of us discounts that. But the last word in the uh, initialism PTSD is disorder. This is a disorder. They are disordered. The White House Correspondents' uh, Dinner <clears throat> apparently produced a whole lot of mass infections, hilariously enough, because you needed to have a vac- proof of vaccine to get into the thing, not just vaccination, but proof of booster. And it turns out that everybody, a lot of people got COVID. A lot of people got COVID. From and rapid event. testing, too. Right? And rapid Didn't testing. You had to have proof yes. of testing. Yeah, they did. They put all the mitigation measures they possibly could. A lot of people still got it. And they're going to be just fine. And it makes you wonder, why does Broadway force you to have a proof of vaccination and wear a mask to sit in a theater? Because you're going to get COVID anyway, and you're going to be fine. So, yes, okay. it is superstition. It is it is a totem that these people are clinging to to support otherwise unsubstantiated, unsubstantiated and unprovable beliefs about what COVID can and will do to you. But there is we are going through a period of reckoning now in other aspects of COVID policies. Right. So David Leonhardt's newsletter this morning in The New York Times should be read by every single educator and every single teachers union member on Earth, because what he says, he's very gentle about it. But what he shows is and we've known this for a long time, some of us, is that school closures were actively harmful to kids and largely unnecessary in terms of how long they went on in many places. And those places tend to be democratically controlled and unions, strong teachers unions. So it's just kind of a fact. So that reckoning is happening. And now the question is, how do we fix that problem? But there hasn't, and there's been a lot of discussions of mental health, teachers, mental health, kids, mental health, everyone's mental health, but we're not really reckoning with the bad, that part of the mental health equation, the one that Abe is pointing to, which is that the generalized anxiety that a lot of people still feel and don't even see themselves as a disorder because it's been their reality for so long. So the Atlantic has been publishing a few essays lately, like how to change your mind about COVID, you know, sort of gently trying to usher their readers back into a, into the normal world of, of fact-based uh, risk assessment, but it's not easy. And there is a kind of disordered thinking to it that I think people don't want to confront head on. And well, also, I mean, it's, part, sorry, a, part of the problem is, that there are new variants and new waves. And we hear about them the second they happen uh, and we monitor them as they rise and fall. And so for these people, I agree, no, it is a disorder, um, but it's extraordinarily hard for them to get over because they're never sort of dropped into a non-COVID world. That, that, that's not the way this thing winds down. Well, it's kind of like choose the trauma that you want to focus on, right? So we've been focused for two years, not less than two years, maybe maybe a year and a half on the trauma caused by excessive restriction of personal freedoms and uh, and children and all of that. And clearly, uh, in, in a city that is uh, more than ordinarily uh, singleton and uh, child free and all of that, the trauma that is being focused on is the individual psychic trauma caused by COVID among adults and among, uh, you know, people who are, uh, uh, you know, who have been scared witless and remain scared and uh, are focused on, you might call sort of statistically negligible problems. And that sounds heartless to say, but the number of actually immunocompromised people in the United States is about 3%. Uh, But if you ask people why they're masking, they will instantly say, I'm doing it for the immunocompromised. They they barely probably even know somebody who's immunocompromised. I mean, there are a lot of people think that it's like, oh my God, I just got a cold at the drop of a hat, so I must be immunocompromised. It's actually, there is an actual thing where people either for uh, treatment reasons, uh, have their immune systems actively suppressed or have conditions that suppress their immune systems. And those number, as I say, around 3% of the population and 97% of the population. And they, they must take measures to protect themselves. And it is a heartening thing to know that many people in America want are, are, are willing to take measures to protect them that may restrict their individual liberties. But I think it's like one of those things where people think that Israel is 10 times the size that it is. 
you know, when you ask a lot of people on the planet, like, how big is Israel? How populous is Israel? You know, they say that there are 100 million people. It's like, I think people think there are more people at risk from serious illness from COVID that aren't them than there in fact are. I think it's actually more like gluten intolerance that the, the rise of people who are like, I have celiac disease because bread makes me bloated. No, you might just have a mild intolerance to gluten in certain things, but it became this whole sort of status marker of right. Like now I need to be catered to because I need to be treated differently and in a special way. And my food needs to be a certain way because I have this condition. And there was sort of a valorization of the condition when in fact, many of the people who claim they're gluten intolerant aren't even gluten intolerant. And, and the people who have genuine celiac disease are, you know, there's a way to diagnose that and they really suffer. And there, there's a great, you know, they get quite ill if they are exposed to this stuff. So there's a way in which this has become a life. And we've talked about this, how it's been a life style choice. I will say it's aided and abetted by the schizophrenic messaging that the media continues to do. You'll turn on, you know, a new show and there'll be someone saying, you know, children are at great risk by this new variant and old people too. And they're all over the map. The real risk is quite low, extremely vanishingly low for children with these new variants. And there's still more risk for old people. We've known this all along, but the way it's presented, it's got to be a fresh new take on something that you might not realize. And it it, it stirs up the fear in people who are already predisposed to be anxious. There is also <clears throat> this phenomenon of long COVID, which has no evidence to support that it exists. Careful. I know, Careful. I know this is so dangerous because all you read about on the, in, the, in the press and the millennial focus press in particular is how invalidated people with persistent symptoms feel by the medical establishment because they talk to their doctors about it and they feel like they're being ignored. And they are. The long COVID For very valid reasons. It's a fascinating aspect of the pandemic, um, especially because it got off the ground. Uh, It was first sort of coined as the result of an online survey done by a group, I can dig up the name in a bit, um, that is not a medical organization or even a scientific organization. It's it's some sort of... uh, Left, left of center social justice organization. Um, and the people, most literally the majority of the people who reported long-term COVID symptoms had not been diagnosed with COVID-19. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm looking at something right now. Symptoms, quote, symptoms can affect nearly any organ system, including your heart, lung, kidneys, brain, eyes, skin, and they can widely vary, including fatigue, headaches, insomnia, heart palpitations, brain fog, muscle pain, and more. In other words, everything and anything substantiates the idea that this this malady, this syndrome exists. Every and if everything years, substantiates yeah. it, nothing substantiates I, it. And let me add, it's still being used by uh, people who want to continue closures, particularly teachers union folks. It was used here in D.C. as another reason why. And charter, poor charter schools kids, which are still all masked, it was long used as a reason why it was unsafe to open. The risk of long COVID to our nation's educators. Yes. So it's used as a bargaining chip by people who who want to keep things closed or keep kids masked. Right. Well, so every 10 years, there is one of these mystery conditions that uh, that becomes uh, bizarrely fashionable. Right. There was Epstein-Barr, which which is a real thing. I mean, Epstein-Barr is a source of mononucleosis and uh, the the Epstein-Barr virus. But then tens of millions of people, you know, who 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 were tired uh, a lot of the day would say they had chronic fatigue syndrome, which came from Epstein-Barr. There is no such thing. There is no such thing as chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, I'll give you was one, con- but from my childhood, attention deficit disorder, <clears throat> which is a real thing, and but was diagnosed in everyone, including me. Uh, right. Well, that's and, particularly and all, always. And all that's of still, us were prescribed. Still going on. And all of us were prescribed uppers in order in, in order to you know not be young men, young boys. Who had oh, that's, you know, who were fidgety, yeah. right? But that is still that is still going on. That's not just from your childhood. Uh, oh, but they're not prescribing now, now... Adderall to every single you know ambulatory child. Oh, really? Still not not yeah, in my are. experience. More. Oh yeah, more. Really? Sorry, no. You're you're yeah yeah. It's 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 now it's now sort of hard college and... campuses in particular. And, well, yeah, college campuses, down. kids kids take it to to help them to study study, yeah. but. Right. Uh, so they're all long haul truckers now. To We're be all fighter pilots. <laughs> what was the what was the disease in the 90s that uh, 
was the subject of that Julianne Moore movie, Safe. Um, I'm trying oh, right, to remember. Multiple immune, like it was, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, immune, yeah, the sort yeah, of multiple uh, yeah, immune again. reaction. Yeah, so the idea was you couldn't go outside because you were basically like the boy in the Allergic bubble, to like. everything, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I have... Again, 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 uh, that kind of faded because it turns out that this, that condition doesn't exist. And so every 10 years, there is a there is a, a hysterical condition that doesn't exist that is, you know, probably depression, anxiety, a combination of depression and anxiety. I mean, people, it's not that people aren't suffering actual symptoms of something, but it's not what they think it is. And there, and, and there is a money grab that goes on when this stuff happens. Or people just simple, or just Munchausen. Uh, well, but, but yeah, but let's assume let's assume it's not Munchausen. Let's assume that they're not lying and that they actually do feel crappy, right? Well, so Munchausen they feel isn't crappy. lying. Mun they, they're oh yeah, Munchausen is. I lying. have a so Munchausen. I... Munchausen is lying. Munchausen was a liar. The idea is you lie about a disease in order to get sympathy. That's that's Munchausen's. Anyway, Abe, go ahead. I have a slightly different take here. I think some of it is 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 certainly emotional, um, but I think some of it has to do with the fact that the the these diagnoses are often placeholder diagnoses. So they come, they, you, you come in with a bunch of symptoms, they say, okay, this is chronic fatigue. Okay, this is poly, blah, 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 whatever, you know, uh, environment, what, okay. And people, and they just, and people then just say, okay, I have this thing because it has a name. Um, I think what could be happening in, in, in and as I suspect what's happening in, in a lot, large number of these cases is that people do have something and the medical establish establishment doesn't quite know what it is. Uh, the medical establishment knows what it doesn't know is far greater than what it does know. Not saying that what it does know isn't extraordinary and it can solve and you know unbelievable problems and cure diseases and do but it's an ever growing, ever changing field. Um, but I don't think that the, the diseases as characterized exist in the way that uh, the people who are satisfied to get a diagnosis believe. Um, can I just go back to the, cause I, cause I just want to, cause I said something somewhat bold about long COVID and I just want to cite, cause I have it right here. Um, this is from the wall street journal in March of 2021. The concept of long COVID has a highly unorthodox origin. Online surveys pr produced by body politic which launched, which launched in 2018 and described itself atop its website's homepage as, quote, a queer feminist wellness collective merging the personal and the political. Okay, then it goes on to say, nearly half, 47.8% of those who responded to this survey never had testing and 27.5 tested negative for COVID-19. Those, I'm sorry, those are of those who self-identified as having persistent symptoms attributed to COVID. So you're saying that more than a quarter of people who claim to have long COVID never had COVID. Yeah, they were they, they, self-reported. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So 27% of people who never had COVID have long COVID, according right. to them. Yeah, and 47% just never were never tested. So assuming, assuming that those two numbers, you can add those two numbers, that 70% of people with long COVID were either not tested or don't never had COVID. Wow, that's, uh, that's stunning. Um, so let's, so, but again, so the real issue, the real subject here is the million, uh, you know, the fact that we've hit this, uh, this horrendous and uh, an awful milestone um, and I think that, again, we, we're back to the world in which if you live in New York, where a lot of the media are centered and 70% of people in New York still think everybody should be masked and there's talk about these new variants and everything, um, the, uh, the, there is going to be a very concerted decision to center the conversation over the next four or five days on this, on this toll and plunge, you know, try to plunge everybody into a renewed sense of hopelessness about our escaping this condition. Uh, Noah, Noah has said from the outset that, you know, there are a lot of people in the United States who have already, you know, who moved on 
a year and a half ago, right? I mean, however, uh, clearly there are a lot of people in the United States who aren't going to move on. Uh, and we, of course, had the weirdness of Fauci saying that we had, we had left the pandemic phase, then having to, having to double back and say, maybe, ah, maybe we haven't left the pandemic phase. So, I mean, the politics of this are very, very confusing. I don't see how, on the one hand, I don't see how it helps Biden and the Democrats to continue to depress the American people because they need them, even if they're angry, they need them having some energy if they're going to retard the Republican advance. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that makes you defeated and feel hopeless and like there's nothing you can possibly do. And they're more inclined to hear this than Republicans. And I think it's very bad for them pol politically. Um, and on the other hand, if they, if they, if they downplay it, which is how they they fear, I think they, they feel, uh, they will be seen either to be caving to DeSantis or to be, um, you know, whistling past the graveyard. I think we're on the cusp of, uh, of a sea change in democratic opinions about their prospects in November. Um, not in part because, you know, there is some polling evidence that suggests, you know, if you, if you pay only attention to like YouGov, Republicans don't have an advantage in the generic ballot. Um, you know, that's an outlier, but it's one you can attach yourself to. But before the earth shifted beneath our feet on Monday evening, I read two pieces, uh, one in Politico and one uh, Axios, that outlined how Democrats felt like they could escape this vortex. And there were two prongs to this strategy. One is that Elon Musk is going to save them because Elon Musk is going to get Donald Trump back on Twitter. And Trump is going to dominate the national conversation and, and serve as a poll around which they can rally their voters and mobilize them and get them out to the polls. The second is what I guess you have to call the Mallory McMurrow strategy. So this is a very obscure legislature, legislator who was attacked and accused of being you know, one of these groomer types by the very online right who are, uh, you know, uh, No, but I think by another... By another legislator, another another, another so to who's, say, who's plugged into the very online right. Yeah, exactly. Um, regardless, it was an offensive attack on her, and she delivered a very you know stirring defense of herself and and democratic objectives, and became a little mini hero on, on the on the left. And the idea was to elevate her. This is coming out of Democratic campaign officials. The idea was to elevate her as a uh, a counteroffensive against all this Republican culture warring. Now, there really wasn't a lot of Republican culture warring before Monday night, but the uh, potential for this ruling has reintroduced the prospect that a lot of Republicans could put their feet in their mouths by um, saying what they really genuinely believe on abortion, which is that all abortion should be illegal. It's a, it's a moral atrocity. And I don't think that's where the country is generally. They're very, very apprehensive about abortions after the first trimester, but not a, not not to the point where they want to see this procedure made illegal. So it's quite possible. And because of J.D. Vance's victory today, we're sitting in a world in which Trump is back and Republicans are doing culture war. Exactly as these two pieces said, the, the conditions would present themselves for Democrats to take advantage of them and neutralize Republican advantages or even hold the two chambers of Congress they presently hold. Um, I think this is a very flawed analysis. But what do you guys think? Well, I, I, I'm struck by the fact that, yes, people say in these polls that they support Roe v. Wade. But I think polls show, as you said, that uh, Americans, by a comparable margin, basically support the idea that is behind the law in Mississippi that was just upheld or, right. or apparently putatively was upheld by the draft opinion of Alito on Mississippi that basically bans abortion after 15 weeks. I mean, it doesn't basically, it bans abortion after 15 weeks, I think with no exceptions. Um, and so everybody has a reason to tread carefully here on both sides because Democrats have a culture war advantage on the idea that there is some form of fanaticism in the conservative effort to ban all abortions. 
and the right or the or or the uh, anti-abortion side has the public behind it on the idea that abortions need to be restricted mostly by you know time but then also you know by the viability questions we've talked about for the last couple of days but you know and what so, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that one of the predictions that Noah made the other day actually immediately came to fruition uh, because Tim Ryan went was asked by Brett Baer, you know, the, the sort of moderate Democrat in Ohio who will go face off with Vance, uh, said he was asked, what do you, what about abortion? You know, do you want any restrictions, including, you know, into the third trimester? And he wouldn't say he supported restrictions. He said, you've got to leave it up to the woman. You've got to leave it up to the woman. That message is basically saying no restrictions on abortion. And there are a lot of voters in Ohio who do not agree with that. That is not, the, that is not the majority, including Democrats. Yeah. Including Tim Ryan. Yes. No, he doesn't believe and it Tim either. Ryan, but the Tim fact Ryan, that he answered that way but that's yeah. very telling for the left. I remember hearing all throughout the 90s and early 2000s that, oh, Republicans claim they want to overturn Roe v. Wade, but they wouldn't like it if it, if it got overturned because then they'd actually have to defend their extremist views on abortion. But that argument also applies to extremist views on the left about abortion. Right. And so that's I, always been the case. So they have to defend it, as you said, John. So I, so I don't know. I mean, I think this is a very Look, you said from the outset, Noah, that, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're just in a different world. We can't gain this out. We don't have any prior evidence of an issue like this ever happening. We have never, we have not in our lifetimes had the Supreme Court rule that a, that a constitutional, a supposed constitutional right is actually not a constitutional right that uh, something that was theoretically, even though Roe v. Wade actually did limit abortion. I mean, there were limits in the, the that was the three trimester scheme. Um, there were limits on abortion that were basically lifted by, by Casey to some extent. Uh, although you could, although Casey opened the door for legislative restrictions at the state level, but it did also end the three trimester rule where, you know, basically the supposedly really shouldn't have abortions after the third, you know, into the third trimester. Um, but I, I, I'm very, it just strikes me that we're in a, we're, we just don't know how, how this can play out. And the one thing that the media have to their advantage, or the one thing Democrats have to their advantage is they do, even though there's still, there's a lot of conservative media and there's Fox and there's this and there's that, they do have control of, um, of, of making something a major, an incident, inflaming something into a major incident that becomes a kind of focal point so again like one stupid thing that some legislator says somewhere they can blow up into a week-long story to panic people you know i mean th this was the 2012 example of we keep talking about murdoch and and uh, and aiken and uh people saying stupid things about abortion that you can then focus on and then uh, torpedo their campaigns and i guess this could have a nationwide effect and Republicans don't really, or conservatives or pro-lifers don't really have that same force because they have Fox and they have, they have their own, we have our own media, uh, but they don't have the, um, the multiplicity of networks and newspapers and all of that, that can kind of just turn something into a major thing in the same way. So in that sense, you have to give them the advantage on, on wh who, what's going to hurt worse, being saying crazy things if you're on the right or saying crazy things if you're on the left. And on the other hand, like, I don't know, if people are paying a lot of attention, which supposedly people will be doing, they will hear both sides. But, you know, about, yeah. about that attention, well, while I agree, nothing like this has really happened, and we, so we, it's hard to play out, at the same time, this is an era of sort of constant upheaval. And there are so many enormous things competing with this story for the public's attention. You know, there's, the pandemic is still ongoing. Numbers are rising. There's inflation. There may be a recession around the corner. There's the war in Ukraine and the fear that Putin will escalate. Um, this isn't, it's not, it, this decision, should it, come to fruition hasn't happened you know in in between uh the cold war and 9 11 this is yeah. this is a time when there's a whole lot of things that are really concerning americans 
another another way that we can't game this out. Yeah, it may not be as important as it appears. I mean, obviously, it's morally important, and it is important in terms of American history and all of that. And it's certainly important, assuming that some version of the draft opinion that we read, you know, may be amended, but remains, you know, the 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 decision points remain firm. I mean, it's obviously a key moment in cons in you know in constitutional jurisprudence. Yeah, but it may not have the electoral effect that people think. We just I think it, it's it's more of a trap for Democrats in this way, <clears throat> that if they've convinced themselves that the Emily McMurrow strategy and the, you know, the, the Trump rescuing them and essentially the Supreme Court energizing their voters, all of this is going to rescue them. Then they do nothing to repair their damaged brand, which is a disaster. And they are presiding over conditions, as Abe says, that are that predominate American voters' minds: inflation, the economy, crime, what have you. These are urgent issues um, that demand immediate political remedy. And abortion and is even, not one of those. And even on it abortion, obsesses. I'm sorry, just briefly, it, 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 it obsesses the political class. There's everyone is still talking about this exclusively, and to the to the detriment of every other issue. Um, now, 72 hours after this leaked draft, which may not even come to fruition, may not happen in June. Um, so to the to the extent that this blinds the political class to the real factors that are affecting how people intend to vote in November, it, it'll only hurt Democratic prospects because they won't be talking about what people actually care about. They'll be well, hammering abortion to try to get their voters out to the polls to the you know, without motivating actual swing voters, even alienating some swing voters. It's the convoy strategy. Well, and even on abortion, they're doing that. They're, they're making a mistake uh, in the same way they have done in the past with issues like crime. They are they are the if you actually look at dig down in some of the polling and you look at, uh, you know, for example, lower income women who are minority women. These are the women who the abortion activists are like, these are who, the people we are protecting with abortion rights because they can't afford to have more kids and they they can't afford to drive to another state. That's their argument. Those women are often uh, religious. Those women are often not uh, keen on abortion or as keen as the activist class who claim to speak for them and their rights make out to be. And it reminds me a lot of the sort of the, the college educated white women, progressive white women telling all the people who live in high crime neighborhoods that they don't need a police force. I mean, there, there's a risk there in terms of who these uh, more elite uh, white women who dominate the abortion rights movement, who they are really speaking for. Um. I mean, I, I do think that it, we shouldn't get too clever and think that, you know, well, you know, people really want to talk about inflation and, uh, you know, abortion wasn't a crisis. I mean, for people for whom this is a central issue, and there are two kinds of people like that. One is pro-lifers who have, for whom this has been, I mean, very serious pro-lifers for whom this has been the central preoccupying political issue of their lifetimes. And the other is kind of like the pro-parent, Planned Parenthood uh, camp followers who kind of have the same. It's like all, I, all they want, all they care about is that abortion remain legal. It's like a kind of, it is the thing that gets them. And granted, in both these cases, they're not necessarily the, you know, not necessarily a majority or even a plurality of the voters of either party. But it's this is very big. And, you know, saying that, eh, you know, this is going to be a distraction from what people really want to talk about. I mean, politically engaged people really want to talk about this. Like, I know politically engaged people are going to turn out no matter what, though. Well, yeah. But I, I, I mean, I, I understand your point. It's just saying like Democrats are making a mistake to stress this because people are going to want to talk about something else. They're not going to want to. A lot of people really aren't going to want to talk about something else. Now, things can happen like new, new wrinkles in this time of upheaval, as they mentioned, can happen that will put this in the rearview mirror a little bit or cause a new form of obsession or something like that. That's that's absolutely the case. Um, but, uh, but, you know, we don't know what those are. They're not on the radar yet. And we, we don't know what those are. I am struck by the fact that our, uh, uh, my friend, Christine's friend, Carlin Bowman, uh, at AI said, the truth about America is it appears to be both pro-choice and pro-life. 
and that's a very interesting that's a very interesting fact and it's so it 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 uh it plays against the strengths of each side in mobilizing on this issue generally speaking the pro life cause has been a more effective mobilization strategy than the pro choice side this is the one moment at which that may flip but as Matt Connetti said on the podcast the other day when Texas passed the fetal heartbeat law and that was like oh my god this is really a moment when the politics can 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 flip and you know Greg Abbott is running away with the governor's race like he's going to get 60% of the vote against Beto O'Rourke i mean that's that's you know i mean that that proof of the pudding is in the eating it's actually not changed the political dynamic in Texas that's the first real test case and you know unless things shift you know uh, it's not it's not proving to be what it could have been and you, that that's the only data point that we have actually on this and it it doesn't it doesn't speak well for the democratic side um if you want to speak well about issues if you want to really talk smart intelligently and uh, deeply about let's say our economic woes uh, or our economic prospects or economic possibilities you got to go get david bonson's book there's no free lunch 250 economic truths david's book is a primer a daily primer on economics ordered liberty uh and uh, human flourishing that uh gathers uh great quotes from great philosophers, great economists, great thinkers, great theologians and uses them to explain import every sort of important economic concept there is to show how there is a real interplay between all of these uh groups, these factors and these ideas uh that uh lead to a meaningful life, a prosperous life, uh a flourishing life for the people who live by them and the nations or particularly our nation that struggles to, that struggles uh you know with uh, ideological assaults against the very ideas that have made us you know great and enduring so that's david bonson that's b a h n s e n david bonson's book there's no free lunch 250 economic truths you can get it at amazon barnes and noble wherever you get your books get it give it to friends um it will be uh instructive educational and inspiring uh okay where do we uh where do we go from here noah had thoughts on on elon musk i do <laughs> <laughs> well I, i assume you have more thoughts on elon musk did we um new york times produced a uh a piece of journalism and it is pretty decent journalism although it's set out clearly with an attempt uh <clears throat> to affect uh to, it had a narrative in mind when it, when it, when they set out um it is a profile in new york times of elon musk uh and his youth uh in south africa apartheid south africa and the title tells you everything you need to know elon musk left a south africa that was rife with misinformation and white privilege subtitle the apartheid era created all white enclaves littered with anti-black government propaganda and sheltered from the atrocities of apartheid and the piece goes on to note that elon musk left south africa when he was 17 gave very little evidence that he was influenced by apartheid or supported apartheid in fact to the extent that they could find any anecdotes from his boyhood it was of him befriending uh, a black african who was uh, a chided attacked made fun of by his peers and then subsequently died in a car accident and then musk attended his funeral so very little evidence that musk was an apartheid supporter or a racist but it is interesting that they set out to do this in the first place and that they talk about him in in ways that that it's it's, it's suggestive of how you would talk about a mass shooter quote classmates at two high schools he attended describe him as a loner with no close friends none offered recollections of the things he said or did that revealed his views on the politics at the time but black classmates recall that he spent some time with black friends um again this is sort of like the the way you would talk about somebody who had committed an atrocity he's kind of weird he's a loner we don't know what he thinks we don't know what he believes what would lead him to do this to us because that's the that's the underlying message here that's why this piece was greenlit in the first place 
He's doing this to us. Why would he do this to us, to our space? That's the way they talked about the most recent New York subway shooter. Well, and it's, but this shows you something very revealing about how the New York Times goes about doing a journalistic profile of someone who they've already decided they don't like or who they've already decided is dangerous. So the first thing is that they cannot imagine a child who isn't an activist these days because they are in a milieu and surrounded by people who recruit their children to their own activism, usually on the progressive side. So that's one thing. So a teenager who didn't actively get out there with signs marching against whatever you know social justice cause they think they should be is instantly suspect. But the other thing is how they are ahistorically trying to tie him to something he had no power to change and, and you know, make him the beneficiary of what everyone agrees was a horrible system, right? So now he's, he's you know, apartheid Elon, Elon Musk, not just going to take over Twitter and cares about free speech. And the use of the word misinformation there is deliberate. It's just that they're trying to sow doubt in the very ideas of free speech that he's been articulating online since he purchased Twitter. And that is... Uh, that's absolutely an ideological campaign on the part of people who claim to be journalists. Can I can I can I make a sort of an ancillary point based on uh, no was it an actual quote from the piece which I, I I acknowledge I have not yet read that says he he was like bathed in white privilege the term white privilege is in the piece oh that's in the headline okay so just, but that was the just, that was the milieu in out, which he grew yeah, up okay. So we've spent like two, three years with people yet yammering at us about how we need to confront our white privilege and to, you know deal with our white privilege. And here in America, there's all this white privilege. And um, screw all of you people, because if you're going to refer to a part of the apartheid state of South Africa with exactly the same verbiage, if you're going to say that a person growing up in South Africa was somebody who benefited from white privilege, just like a white person in America benefited from white privilege. That was white, it wasn't white privilege. It was it was actual law favoring whites over blacks. Right, it's actual, like calling Jim Crow white privilege. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it, it is, and so it ain't white privilege, it is apartheid. It is the, it is the systematic denial of equal rights to uh, a racial group that was, by the way, not even a minority, as a majority in South Africa, right? So um, this just is yet another way in which uh, they discredit their own New York Times 1619 horseshit. And I, I mean, it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, one other thing I would say about Elon Musk, he may not have been an activist, he may not have been this, he may not have been that. He left South, his family left, he left South Africa. And I think his family followed him. If it's so wonderful to be a white person in South Africa, which I think it was, I mean, I don't, I, I, I can't remember how old, I don't, I don't even know, remember when this was, what, what year was it that he left? When he was 17, I don't know the year I could pick it up, but he went to, he and his family went to Canada. Right. Okay. Talk so about let's white talk privilege. about this. So, no, so they went to Canada. Okay. So they didn't want to stay in white privilege, South Africa. Like most of the, Many, uh, many of the uh, Jews I know who left South Africa in the 1980s, who had been flourishing in South Africa, left because they were they weren't necessarily anti-apartheid activists, but they were deeply uncomfortable living in the country and wanted to make a different future for themselves, um, you know, which is what non-activists do when they want to get away from something that is morally disturbing to them. You know, they don't go to jail they don't do, but they they vote with their feet they get the hell out of dodge they go somewhere else the evidence of elon musk's life is that he probably was uncomfortable with south africa and so with apartheid in his family because they left instead of staying to revel in their white privilege um you know just as circumstantially you have to sort of consider that as a as a significant possible fact in in elon musk's life at least as plausible as the idea that he was bathed in white privilege and has never really apologized for having committed the crime of having been born in south africa and having you know been a child of a family that wasn't yet ready to leave um it's just appalling i mean it's 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 beyond it's beyond appalling uh in some ways um Okay, do we have uh, 
do we have anything else uh, that we should get to? Because uh, you know we have this uh, problematic sound quality here. We haven't we haven't uh, we haven't been on very long. But since I can't think of anything else to talk about, not that there are. Oh well, I mean, there is this absolutely dreadful story in the New York Times. Dreadful, not because it's, but I mean that you almost wonder why on earth. Uh, somebody, I mean, this is the sort of thing that ordinarily somebody from the administration or the Pentagon or something would call the publisher of the New York Times and beg them not to publish, assuming that it's true, that uh, the United States is participating in the Ukrainian effort to kill Russian generals, uh, which, uh, if true, um, is something we shouldn't know and that is a national security it's a breach of a very significant national security that puts americans at risk all over the world from russian retaliation uh anybody have any thoughts about this yeah just like you said and that this is something we shouldn't know about <clears throat> i'm writing a little bit about this today i think briefly just because <clears throat> we should probably do some retrospectives on how the early early lawyering an early apprehension about escalatory moves that might bring Russia into this thing or might force Russia to label us a co-belligerent or something along those lines sort of fell by the wayside. I mean, we were, we were apprehensive about giving them stinger missiles and we gave them stinger missiles. We were apprehensive about giving them heavy weapons and we gave them some heavy weapons. We didn't want to give them actionable intelligence and now we're giving them actionable intelligence. So what changed? It wasn't as though we discovered this new theory of war or uh, some sort of a legal doctrine or rationale that would allow us to do the things we were otherwise concerned about doing. I don't think it was any of that. My, my assumption is that we just realized how bad they were at this, that Russia didn't have the capacity, the tactical or strategic capacity to execute retaliatory strikes on, um, on anything resembling a NATO position or um, NATO aligned uh, you know, uh, assets that are moving uh, weapons in and out of this country. Um, they can only signal. They they you can throw a, an air-launched cruise missile near Lviv, which is where, you know, we have these assets coming in and out. And that's just a brushback pitch. So my assumption is that we looked around and said, Ukraine's doing better than they, we thought they could. Russia actually doesn't have the capacities we thought they did and decided to up the ante. And I think we're going to keep doing that for some time until we encounter resistance to the point that it raises the costs. Now, there's real dangers there because we could get ourselves into an escalatory cycle that cascades and there's no way to stop that. That's a real threat. But it's not as much of a threat as it was in March, early March, late February. In fact, it's somewhat negligible, it appears, in, in war planning in the West. Um, so all indications are we're going to continue to provide as much assistance as possible because Ukraine is winning this fight. They continue to win it in the East and Donbass. And they're putting things in play that nobody thought they could put in play like Crimea. Um, Look, I think, which I by think, the way yeah. would be a very dangerous condition yeah. because we're talking about, according to Moscow's view, the invasion of Russia proper. Yeah. I mean, part of the Russian Federation. Russia's, Russia's view, Shmash's view. I mean, they have views right. that we don't really need to credit very much. As we no, my fear is that we would. My fear yeah. is that we would give right. credence to the idea that okay. this is Russian territory. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I think there are two things to be said, one of which is, uh, you know, fair is fair. The Biden administration, which looked very um, wobbly about supporting the actual Ukrainian military effort, uh, has, as you say, by degrees, gone more and more and more in. And it deserves credit for that, in my view, because we had that whole nonsense in the first week about transferring the planes and trans, you know, and how we weren't going to let them fly from our air bases because the Pentagon was too scared that the Russians would think that we were involved. And obviously, we've just totally moved on from that. Uh, and that's good. And so the Biden deserves credit for having learned or, you know, uh, gotten a more layered and sophisticated view. And then, of course, the other thing is, I mean, you just got to be lost in admiration of the Ukrainians. They, they, nobody knew that they had this in them. The Russians are bad at it. And granted, we're learning how bad the Russians are at it. But the Ukrainians are good at this. Who, who would have known that the Ukrainians are good at this? You can give people actionable intelligence if we, in fact, are doing that. 
that will help them kill 15 generals. It doesn't mean they're going to be able to kill those 15 generals. You know, they can, they could keystone cops, every single one of those, every one of those efforts and screw them up and make things worse. And clearly uh, they are not only emotionally, you know, determined not to allow their country to be, uh, you know, raped and upbraided this way, but they are logistically remarkably adept. I think um, there's a third thing, though, that you could say about this, which is that the news getting out that we're providing this assistance in killing Russian generals is a big administration blunder. Um, it, it's in that sense, it's not unlike the public spat over the the fighter planes. Well, we just don't know how it happened. So, uh, but the fact that it happened, yeah. But I mean, you know, that's the problem with secrecy is that, you know, a lot of people are probably going to know about this. It could have come from the Ukrainian side. It could not be true. It could also be some weird, you know, wild extrapolation from, uh, you know, from something and that it really it doesn't reflect actual, you know, actual reality. Um and on the other hand, you know, we do have drones and we do have satellites and we know a lot more than we let on. And, you know, and the Russians clearly... know a lot more than Moscow knows exactly what we're providing Ukraine. Um, it, the problem is that it's public now, which forces everybody to yeah. posture and preen and, and set right. red lines. I don't know. I don't know if Moscow knows. Like, I mean, we clearly have the the Kremlin reasonably well penetrated right i mean and that's fine for them to know that because for them to be paranoid about each other and for putin to not know who his enemies are who his traitors are inside his own high command or his own you know that's good like that's that's the kind of psychological warfare that you want against him um but i don't know that they know what we know i mean i, I you know because either way we either know a lot more than he thinks we know or he thinks we know a lot more than we know and either way that's probably pretty good in terms of frightening you know making him worried and i don't and he does not seem to be going to the mattresses you know he's not he's not just like throwing every you know throwing everything in the kitchen sink at this something is holding him back a little bit you know, from from really doing the stuff that, say, you know, Bashar al-Assad was willing to do, he hasn't done yet. I don't know. Anyway, it's a, it's a fascinating set of circumstances. I hope tomorrow to be back speaking to you normally on an actual microphone and everything. I hope this wasn't too much of a torture. I have no idea what this sounds like. That's why I'm saying this. So if it, if it sounds fine, then don't, then you don't have to forgive me. And if it doesn't, please forgive me. It's uh it's a computer problem. Anyway, for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Bodhoritz, keep the camera burning.